Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is entitled, Are Women Human? Jesus, Women, and Identity Politics, and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, June the 17th, 2007. Are Women Human? That's the question the British writer Dorothy Sayers posed in two short essays written in 1938. She had more than an academic interest in the question, by the way. When she finished Somerville College, Oxford, with first-class honors in modern languages in 1915, they didn't yet grant degrees to women. Sayers quotes D.H. Lawrence in her essay, quote, Man is willing to accept woman as an equal, as a man in skirts, as an angel, a devil, a baby face, an instrument, a bosom, a womb, a pair of legs, a servant, an encyclopedia, an ideal or an obscenity. The one thing he won't accept her as is a human being a real human being of the feminine sex. That was the gist of Sayre's radically simple argument, that women be acknowledged as human beings, and only subsequently labeled as a class of human beings qualified by biology, culture, ethnicity, age, economics, nationality, and so on. Dorothy Sayers also made an observation about the Gospels. Women, she noted, were the first at the cradle and the last at the cross. Luke's Gospel for this week punctuates that point in chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, where we read, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many other women. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. The prominence of women in the life of Jesus is both deeply embedded in the Gospels and also highly unusual for that time and place. In one incident, the disciples expressed amazement that Jesus even spoke to a woman, John chapter 4, 27. Respected rabbis would not have associated with women like Jesus did, and women were not allowed to study the Torah. A well-known prayer found in three rabbinic traditions thus thanks God for not being born a Gentile, a woman, or an ignorant man, none of whom enjoyed the privilege of studying Torah. Today the women mentioned by Luke are barely known to us. Mary Magdalene is mentioned several times in the Gospels. Joanna was a witness to the resurrection in Luke 24.10, while the identities of her husband Cusa 
Susanna and the many other women who supported Jesus remained lost to history. In Luke's day, they must have been well-known people of financial means who had left their husbands and families in order to underwrite a sizable group of itinerating evangelists. Perhaps they were some of those first believers who sold their lands and houses and used the money to support the Jesus movement. Acts 4.34 Whatever the particulars, they were, as the poker expression puts it, all in. These women traveled with Jesus and his followers for nearly three years, supported them, witnessed his crucifixion, and then were the first heralds of the resurrection. In Mark chapter 15, verse 41, Mark writes that at his death, some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. And then in Acts chapter 114, after the ascension, we read that, quote-unquote, the women, as if their identities would have been obvious to the original readers, are mentioned as part of those core disciples in the upper room. Four infamous women are listed in Jesus' genealogy of 46 names in Matthew chapter 1, 1-17. Tamar was widowed twice, then became pregnant by her father-in-law Judah, who mistook her for a temple prostitute. The offspring of this incest were the twin boys Perez and Zerah. Perez is a relative of Jesus. Rahab was a foreigner and a prostitute who by her lies protected the Hebrew spies. She's mentioned only three times in the New Testament. In Hebrews 11.31 as a hero of faith, in James 2.25 as an exemplar of good works, and then in Matthew chapter 1 verse 5 as the great-great-grandmother of King David. Ruth was a foreigner and a widow who married the wealthy Boaz, King David's great-grandfather. And then Bathsheba, the subject of David's adulterous passion and murderous cover-up, was the mother of King Solomon. These four women were part of Jesus' family of origin. <clears throat> the many women who financed the life and ministry of Jesus, said Sarah, had never known a man like Jesus. She writes, a prophet and teacher who never nagged at them, never flattered or coaxed or patronized, who never made arch jokes about them, never treated them either as the women, God help us, or the ladies, God bless them, who rebuked without querulousness, and praised without condescension, who took their questions and arguments seriously, who never mapped out their sphere for them, never urged them to be feminine or jeered at them for being female, who had no axe to grind and no uneasy male dignity to defend, who took them as he found them 
and was completely unselfconscious. There's no act, no sermon, no parable in the whole gospel that borrows its pungency from female perversity. Nobody could possibly guess from the words and deeds of Jesus that there was anything funny about women's nature. I've tinkered with Sarah's description of how Jesus treated women by substituting other common categories of today's identity politics. For example, the permutations are almost endless. Jesus never nagged Republicans or flattered Democrats. He didn't patronize illegal aliens or have an axe to grind with natural-born citizens. He never joked about gays or jeered at straight people, but took their arguments and questions seriously. He had no axe to grind with the poor and didn't manipulate the rich. He never used any of these people as negative examples, but instead accepted them just as he found them. Identity politics help us to remember people whom we try hard to forget. We marginalize people because in our limited experience, we consider them as strange and therefore as a threat to our own narrow identity. But still, at the end of the day, labels of race, gender, nationality, politics, ethnicity, and sexual identity feed the reductive rhetoric of the latest fad, a partisan cause, or someone's political ideology. As Sayers observed, such classifications narrow rather than expand what it means to be human. Identity politics thus forget a deeper truth that we should always remember, that God loves all of us without conditions or limits, not because of or even in spite of anything at all, other than that as human beings we are his children. That's the good news of the kingdom that Jesus proclaimed in village after dusty village, thanks to the many women who sacrificed family and finance to support him. And now for further reflection. Who have been the important women in your life? How and why? Who are you tempted to marginalize and why? Number three, what narrow ideology, cause, or commitment restricts your view of the expansive love of God? And then finally, for further reading, see Dorothy Sayers, Are Women Human? Most recently published, Grand Rapids, Erdman's 1971, and then a reprint in 2005. This tiny book contains two essays from Dorothy Sayers' collection of essays called Unpopular Opinions, which was first published in 1947. For books this week, I review Christopher Hitchens, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. New York, 12 Books, 2007, 307 pages.
I've always enjoyed watching the iconoclastic Christopher Hitchens on television and even went to a local bookstore to hear him speak after I finished his new book. Few public intellectuals can match his colorful polemic, his encyclopedic in intellect, and his rapier wit. He's a great storyteller with good stories to tell. I highly recommend that religious believers of all sorts read his new book, God is Not Great, mainly to consider just how malevolent and irrational religious sincerity can be. It's bitter medicine, but I was glad I took it. While this book sizzles from start to finish, you won't find much stake in it. Hitchens falls far short of accomplishing his lofty goal of to show, quote, how all the claims of established religion are bogus and man-made and undeserving of anything but contempt and ridicule, end quote. Hitchens chronicles page after page of religious atrocities to show that religion is a man-made wish fulfillment. But later he admits that just as virtuous behavior by believers is no proof at all of the religion, neither does evil behavior discredit religion. It's really what he calls, quote-unquote, undecidable whether we ought to take good or bad deeds as paradigmatic of religion. And in fact, whether religion has done harm or good, he says, quote, does not say anything at all about its truth or authenticity, end quote. Finally, I find it odd that Hitchens' greatest heroes were all theists, people like Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, and Thomas Paine. Hitchens especially laments the bigotry and intolerance of religious believers. He sings the praises of Spinoza's calm and rational conversation and Lessing's becoming modesty. He quotes the historian E.P. Thompson's memorable caution about the enormous condescension of posterity. He claims that along with his fellow atheists, he does not hold his convictions dogmatically. In practice, though, and this is one factor that makes his book so entertaining, Hitchens derides religious people as yokels, idiots, boobies, and ignoramuses. For him, religious arguments are so much piffle. They're pointless, laughable, and, he says, pathetic. His own arguments, on the other hand, no surprise here, he describes as irrefutable, insuperable, inescapable, devastating, and unanswerable. Finally, with a sort of shrug of his shoulders, Hitchens admits that he himself is no moral exemplar, and that along with all humanity, he too has, quote, an overwhelming tendency to, stu to stupidity and selfishness, end quote. And so Hitchens is thus a patronizing parody of the certitude and exaggerated claims that he attacks. In print and in public, Hitchens loves to appeal to Einstein. But Einstein strongly objected to what he called the fanatical atheist who tried to conscript his reputation for their cause. Many people will object to how thoroughly Hitchens reduces social problems to religion alone. 
Few serious thinkers will follow his contention that the existence of Jesus is quote-unquote highly questionable because it has quote little or no evidence, end quote. He assumes, rather than argues, that a world without religion would, on par, be better than a world with religion. And at one point, he seems to suggest that history has no meaning and the cosmos is but a junkyard. The Harvard Islamic scholar Wilfred Cantwell Smith once observed that almost all intelligent peoples and cultures throughout history have always been religious. It's unfortunate that as one of our leading public intellectuals, Christopher Hitchens cannot move beyond his considerable, considerable gifts of sarcasm and ridicule to shed some new light on that empirical truth. Christopher Hitchens, God is not great. How religion poisons everything. For film this week, I review La Tragedia di Macario from the year 2006, a film from Mexico in Spanish with English subtitles. Directed and written by Pablo Vélez, this film succeeds not because it's an excellent film, but because it does a sufficient job in humanizing an important political and moral issue of our day, illegal immigration from Mexico to the United States. The main character, Macario, is an illiterate laborer who loses his job when the farmer who employs him sells his land and fires all his workers. He's an eminently likable character, as is his lovely wife, and together they're tired of starvation wages. When by fate Macario comes into enough money, he and his friend Felipe decide to cross the border into San Antonio. They pay a so-called coyote to take them across, but when they show up for the trip, he herds a dozen of them into a locked and unventilated freight car. Tragedy awaits these passengers, and also the coyote and even the Mexican farmer who sold his land. La Tragedia de Macario is based upon a true story. La Tragedia de Macario, a Mexican film from the year 2006. For poetry this week, we posted a poem by C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis lived from 1898 to 1963. The title of his poem is In Praise of Solid People. Thank God that there are solid folk who water flowers and roll the lawn and sit and sew and talk and smoke and snore all through the summer dawn who pass untroubled nights and days, full-fed and sleepily content, rejoicing in each other's praise, respectable and innocent, who feel the things that all men feel and think in well-worn grooves of thought, whose honest spirits never reel before man's mystery overwrought, 
Yet not unfaithful nor unkind, with workday virtues surely stayed. Theirs is the sane and humble mind, and dull affections undismayed. O happy people, I have seen no verse yet written in your praise, and truth to tell, the time has been I would have scorned your easy ways. But now through weariness and strife I learn your worthiness indeed. The world is better for such life as stout suburban people lead. Too often have I sat alone when the wet night falls heavily and fretting winds around me moan and homeless longing vexes me. For lore that I shall never know in visions none can hope to see till brooding works upon me so a childish fear steals over me. I look around the empty room, the clock still ticking in its place, and all else silent as the tomb, till suddenly I think a face grows from the darkness just beside. I turn, and lo, it fades away, and soon another phantom tide of shifting dreams begin to play. In dusky galleys pass me sail, full freighted on a fairy sea. I, heal, I hear the silken merchants hail across the ringing waves to me. Then suddenly, again, the room, familiar books about me piled, and I alone amid the gloom by one more mocking dream beguiled. And still no nearer to the light, and still no further from myself, Alone and lost in clinging night, the clock still ticking on the shelf. Then do I envy solid folk who sit of evenings by the fire, after their work and doze and smoke, and are not fretted by desire. C.S. Lewis, in praise of solid people. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the Global Church, for Sunday, June the 17th, 2007. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.